Attention UK-based Getting in the Loop listeners. If you enjoyed my two-part episode with Dr. Walter Style that aired over the last two weeks, then don't miss the opportunity to hear Walter speak live at the University of Exeter next week, the 1st of October, 2019. I'll have the link in the show notes for more details. Hi, I'm Katie Wellen, and join me each week as I talk with experts around the globe about circular economy. You'll find out what's being done to make it a reality, and if it can really solve the problems it promises. It's time for Getting in the Loop. Welcome back to the Getting in the Loop podcast. I'm your host, Katie Whalen, and today we're welcoming Kate Daly of Closed Loop Partners to the podcast. Kate Daly is the Executive Director of the Center for the Circular Economy at Closed Loop Partners, an impact investment firm. The center is a hub for circular business acceleration, investment, and research, focusing on packaging, food, the built environment, and apparel and textiles. Prior to joining Closed Loop Partners, Kate served as Senior Vice President at the NYC Economic Development Corporation. While there, she led a team launching innovative business development programs in sectors including fashion, tech, sustainability, media, and advanced manufacturing. In this episode, you will learn about how Closed Loop Partners is working with U.S.-based companies to help accelerate the transition to a more circular economy. Kate shares why companies are motivated to work on circularity and gives examples of recent projects, including a challenge to reinvent the paper cup as part of the next-gen consortium founded by McDonald's, Starbucks, and Closed Loop Partners. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Kate. And I think you're calling from New York City, am I right? Yes, Closed Loop Partners is based in New York, and thanks so much for having me. Yeah, well, I'm really excited to dive into everything we're going to talk about today. And we initially, we met at the World Circular Economy Forum in June, where you gave a great presentation introducing closed loop partners. Um, And we're going to talk about that in in a little bit. But right now, I just wanted to get your thoughts, you know, because it's been a couple of months since the conference. Um, Is there something that you heard or saw that's been kind of mulling in, in your head? What kind of was your takeaway from from the conference? Well, I think that the time that I spent in Helsinki at the conference, both within the context of the conference and in side events, I was definitely struck by the shared sense of urgency. And while I think of Europe as being far ahead of the United States in terms of advancing a circular economy, especially in light of European legislation and really just general knowledge about the concept and of course, higher recycling rates, what I was hearing over and over is that people feel that even in that relatively supportive climate, efforts aren't moving fast enough. And so it it really struck me that whereas I had been sort of idealizing the European context as moving quite fast, they themselves really see that there's so much more work to do. (laughs) So we kind of have like this disconnect between outsiders, you know, in outsiders looking at Europe saying, oh, well, you know, you're really advanced. And then within Europe, we're like, no, we're not advanced at all. Right. I know. I feel like if if they came and visited the U.S., they might be in for a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was kind of what I was, you know, hoping to talk a little bit more with you today, um, because, you know, as an American uh, living in Europe, I feel a little bit out of touch with what's what's happening in the U.S. And you're sort of right in the, the, the middle of it. So 
Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what's happening? Is there incentive for advancing circular economy in the U.S.? I would say one of the basic challenges here in the United States is that landfill tipping fees here are comparatively inexpensive. And so municipalities and companies don't always feel a financial motivation to transition from a linear to a circular economy because our leaky linear system is, is not that expensive. To, to maintain the status quo. Um, and so I would say that despite that, we still are seeing some cities starting to institute zero waste goals um, and, and other policies that align with circularity. And that's definitely one important driver in the transition. Um, but overall, it's really the private sector and primarily global corporations who are the leading voices to advance circularity in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And so you're saying that the private sector is the one that's sort of that you see a lot of this uh, this drive. And why do you why do you think that then they're sort of motivated to do this? I think in particular for global brands, they're seeing what's happening, not just in Europe, but in other parts of the world. We, we see India banning certain types of plastic. Um, we see China having a, a circular economy policies that are that are influencing their economy. And so I think that global brands are seeing that they have to bring some of this into their own business policies. And they're really advancing beyond those traditional three R's of reduce, reuse, and recycle and taking a much more complex view. And, and I look at it as there are these additional three R's of risk mitigation, revenue opportunities, and regulatory impact. And so risk really relates to the supply chain disruption that we're seeing as a result of climate change, whether that's drought impacting cotton or in other sectors, and then also the risk of talent attraction and retention. We're seeing that more and more employees want to be in purpose-driven organizations. Um, And then, of course, there's the revenue opportunity for alternative business models, like like leasing rather than owning. Um, And then third, we do see that regulations are increasing in the U.S. slowly. Right now, we're primarily seeing this in the form of bans on plastic straws and bags in some regions. And in general, corporations want to get out ahead of all of these issues. And circularity is one tool for future proofing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was what I was going to sort of, I was going to ask a, you know, a question about thinking, is, uh, is there sort of hope in terms of the regulatory, uh, the reg- regulatory, like, um, motivation, like we see sort of in Europe with it, you know, circular economy being discussed at, uh, at a, you know, EU commission level? Um, has there been any discussion like that in, in the U.S.? Not at a national level. We're seeing that there there's some state level um, regulation that's coming in, and certainly there's more of an interest in the challenges associated with recycling after National Sword, China's ban on importing many different types of materials. And so I think there's an awareness that recycling in the United States, United States is a very important economic driver, and that nationally. Um, there's some potential for legislation that can help support recycling, but it's really not framed through the lens of advancing a circular economy per se. I think that that language isn't really common here. Um, it's, it's something I've only seen, for example, the New York Times used the, the term circular economy once in a recent article, whereas in the European press, it's something that's much more common. And many people, even if they're not 
working within this particular sector are familiar with the concept. That's not really where we are in the U.S. right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've actually I was on a I've been on a sailing uh, trip this past uh, summer with it, uh, kind of throughout the west coast of Sweden, and I was talking to like the harbor master in one of a, the, like a tiny tiny little harbor that you can only reach to reach by if you have your own sailboat basically, and he was like asking me what I do, and I was like oh I work on circular economy, and he said oh okay, and I mean they had this like complete detailed and in-depth discussion about circular economy because, you know, it's so prevalent um, in newspapers and in the press, as you said, here and here in Europe. Yeah, the term, it, it really needs to be socialized more here. And I think that it, for me, it's so advantageous when you're looking at these changes through an economic lens, through the opportunities for job creation and revenue. And that's what municipalities and taxpayers and legislators care about. And so there's a huge opportunity here and it's it's all of us have to work even harder to make sure that there's more awareness of it. Mm-hmm. So we're going to dive into your uh, your into closed loop partners and 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 what you're doing. But I had one question before we move on, which was, what terms do you see sort of being used in the U.S. that are kind of hinting at circular economy, but not really straight out using the term circular economy? I think the term zero waste is the more common term here, and we see that cities have set zero waste goals. People understand what that means. Um, that it means fewer materials going into landfills. It means collecting organics and food waste so that they're used in anaerobic digesters or on farms. And so zero waste is that first term that people understand. And then I think the zero waste has such a focus though on consumers' behavior, like that we all need to stop sending so many things to landfill and the municipalities need to institute structures and mechanisms to handle that waste. The circular economy is about really systems level change that allows for prosperity and profit without all of the negative externalities that have impacted our environment and our quality of life. And so I'm hopeful that zero waste in addition to terms like circular, circular economy and circularity can start to become more mainstreamed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and I think you highlight a really good point in terms of, it, yeah, circular economy is moving away from like just what can you do as an individual, but actually the whole uh, systemic change. And, and that's where it's sort of different than what has been talked about, uh, you know, in, in, in terms of like sustainability, uh, for example. That's right. Yeah. So, okay. So we talked about closed loop, par- like we've hinted at closed loop partners, um, but we haven't really talked so much about what you're doing and what's going on. So could you tell us a little bit more about how your organization has been working with, you know, the private sector to tr- try to advance circularity? Absolutely. Um, well, closed loop partners is an impact investment firm that focuses on the circular economy. And we manage multiple funds. That includes a debt fund that invests in recycling infrastructure and technologies. And the investors in that fund include most of the major consumer packaged goods companies, including Unilever, Amazon, as well as all the major beverage companies, Coca-Cola, PepsiCo, and The goal there is to strengthen infrastructure that allows for more materials to be collected that can then be put back into the feedstock of recycled content that helps all of these companies meet their very ambitious goals for post-consumer recycled content in their products. 
And so that's our debt fund that partners with municipalities to build infrastructure. And we also have a venture equity fund that invests in early stage startups with a focus on circular products and business models. So we have multiple funds, but then I manage our Center for the Circular Economy, and that's our innovation hub at Closed Loop. And we focus on convening stakeholders from across the value chain in pre-competitive collaborations to solve for challenges that each actor wouldn't be able to solve on their own. So for example, global brands, they, they lose sight of and control over the products the moment after the point of sale. And that's when they enter into this stream that ultimately leads to the waste stream or the recycling stream. And so we work on very holistic solutions that touch upon design, manufacturing, and, and then after point of sale, looking at what happens within the infrastructure, how do we capture these materials, and also how do we ensure that there's a valuable market commodity coming out the other side that can then feed back into the value chain and the, and the, the material stream. Um, so one example that I'll share of, of something that we're working on is we're currently convening stakeholders and building an investment roadmap for emerging technologies relating to chemical recycling. And the reason that we're starting to focus on this is because of what I think we've all seen as, as really a global plastics waste crisis, um, which is that almost 90% of plastic waste ends up in a landfill incinerator or even worse in our oceans, rather than being treated as a valuable material that it is that can be harvested and brought back into the loop. Um, and we've seen that global plastics demand is forecasted to triple by 2050. So the situation that we're in now is only going to get worse. And we need to examine every option on the table to address plastic waste. So there's not one solution or 12 solutions. We have to look at dozens and dozens of ways to address this issue. And we see chemical recycling as an opportunity. This, these are the diverse processes like pyrolysis and other, other types of processes that turn plastic waste into building blocks for new materials. And so we're partnering with global brands and others to research environmental impact, policy barriers, and market incentives to see what are the best ways to advance these new technologies in parallel to mechanical recycling and reduction and reuse efforts. And so we bring people together pre-competitively to help solve four challenges like this. Wow, fascinating. Okay, so yeah, you're trying to look across the value chain and build these different opportunities. I think that's also, is it, it must be quite challenging to try to like look at this whole system ab approach. Um, it, yeah, I, I'm, I'm trying to think about like, in terms of bringing these, these groups of people together. Um, maybe one of the examples that you gave in Helsinki that was really interesting, I thought, um, kind of that illustrates this is this challenge of reinventing the paper cup. I don't know if I'm if I'm mm -hmm. calling it correctly. If that was what right. it was, yeah. Maybe could you could you tell us about that and how you kind of how you actually brought these different uh, groups together and and sort of took this systematic uh, approach? Yeah, that's for me. That's a great example where we brought together competitors who have been trying to solve for a shared challenge and really identified that a collaborative approach would allow for the most impact downstream 
throughout the value chain um, after point of sale. And so last year, we launched the NextGen Consortium in partnership with Starbucks and McDonald's. And this was an effort to identify and commercialize sustainable food packaging solutions. And our first effort, which was to reinvent the paper cup, was joined by supporting partners, the Coca-Cola Company, Yum Brands, Nestle, and Wendy's. And together, we launched an innovation challenge to identify new solutions for a 100% recyclable and or compostable paper cup. And the, the current paper cup that, that we all see in the market is lined in plastic, lined in, in PE, and right now it's not widely accepted as, as recyclable, and it, and it is not compostable because of the plastic liner. And so we launched an innovation challenge globally. We received 480 responses from around the world, and we narrowed that down to 12 winners. And these winners were companies that had alternative solutions to a lined paper cup, but also three of the winners are reusable cup options. And then one of the winners is a, is a, in a sort of more emerging stage plant-based cup. And we really wanted to, the reason that we didn't have just one winner is first of all, there is no silver bullet for this very complex challenge. And also that we wanted to, the consortium wanted to bring support to emerging innovators at every stage of production. So it might be that there's one winner that could even be in market as early as next year, whereas there are other winners that are developing new technologies that could be useful across sustainable food packaging solutions and that it's worth investing in that sort of research that they're doing and the advances that they're making. And so six of the 12 winners were put into an accelerator that we launched earlier this year. And that will culminate after six months in a pitch day and demo day to show off all the work they've done and, and where their products are now and invite investors um, to come and, and see if, if this is of interest. And in parallel to all of the, the innovation work, we're also working very closely on infrastructure and identifying what are the challenges at material recovery facilities who are or are not accepting paper cups? What are the challenges in composting facilities to accept this type of material? What impact does that have? And also, what's driving the paper mills in terms of commodity value of something like this? A paper cup has a, has a very high quality fiber um, that could be desirable. So how do we make sure that all of the different players throughout the value chain are able to access the benefit of what a reinvented cup could give them? And so we convene stakeholders, have those conversations and see what are the obstacles, what are the opportunities, and how do we advance the solution? Fascinating. That's, that's, um, will you, will you have the result, like the, will you be sharing the results sort of publicly after the accelerate, like after the acceleration program finishes? Absolutely. Um, we're really excited with how far the companies and the accelerator have come. And also, we're looking ahead to piloting some of these solutions in store and have already started some prototyping efforts within, for example, corporate headquarters and cafeterias um, to see how do the cups and reusable cups perform. And then the next step is to bring that to more public facing pilots. Mm. So a little bit circle, circling back a little bit, and it's also kind of related to this reinventing the the paper cup challenge. You know, you talked about bringing these different actors together and and collaboration. And I'm just curious, have you encountered you know challenges with bringing potentially these competitors 
to together under the same roof to to solve challenges and problems together like you mentioned you know these different fast food chains and things has there been um have there been issues or tensions there how, how do you go about you know doing that and, and actually bringing them in in the same room um under one roof i've been so pleasantly surprised by how conflict-free these efforts are and it's because everyone's in the room for the right reason and also everyone has a lot to contribute to that room. And so we're not seeing those types of tensions simply because all of these brands need to have this collective effort in order to figure out the infrastructure issues. And so this is this is all something that's really beyond their control. And so this collective effort that allows them to advance their own goals um, is so beneficial that it's okay that it helps advance their competitors' goals because there's no way if one brand comes up with an entirely new approach to coffee cups that the system and infrastructure is going to accommodate that one change. Whereas when you have a collective effort, that's where the larger system is incentivized to acknowledge, accept, and address a new type of material or a new business model. And so you need that sort of collective effort to advance individual efforts. And I think all of the brand partners are, are very aware of that and really want to move full speed ahead. And we've, we've seen a tremendous interest in, in other brands joining the effort, and we're still bringing on additional supporting partners to, to join the next-gen consortium. And so we see this as a, as a really successful model. And in the U.S. context, really is the most successful model in the absence of regulations um, or other sorts of carrots and sticks. It's really the private sector mobilizing in this way that's going to move the needle. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. I think, you know, I, I'm sure that like the listeners are taking notes and I think a lot of them are probably really inspired by this next gen. Uh, is it, can I call it a consortium? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so I'm just, okay, maybe you can uh, in, enlighten me a little bit. Is like, are the, are they, how is, how is this sort of being, funded may i ask that question like is it the 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 partners paying into to this challenge or um is it receiving other support it, absolutely it's um so starbucks and mcdonald's are the founding partners of the consortium and they each are investing five million dollars in the consortium in order to um, fund all of these efforts including the innovation challenge the accelerator the the research on infrastructure and potential future investments in infrastructure to ensure that these materials get through the system and then come out the other end as valuable feedstock for a continuation of their life cycle wow okay very cool so that was a little bit about packaging and then i know in helsinki you you gave some examples about apparel and you've touched a little bit on you know in this in this call we've talked a little bit about chemical uh, recycling very briefly but do you have any really things that you've been working on that you would love to share in terms of apparel or things in terms of like an example that you think is really um a promising way to to go about in a, a apparel in when framing it in terms of a circular economy well, I would just touch upon one project that we're partnering on, which is called Connect Fashion. We're partnering with, with Eon Group on that. And it's about formulating a, a digital identity for apparel. And so really thinking of it as a materials passport for each article of clothing so that at every stage of the value chain, you can identify 
what is this made of? Where did it come from? And that helps you understand where can it go? And so if you can imagine a future where at a recycling center or a sorting facility or uh, a reuse company that you can do something like take your iPhone and scan a tag within clothing and then understand, is it 100% cotton? Is it a cotton poly blend? Is it 100% nylon? That sort of information is critical to understand what can the next life be for this material. And we don't have that in place yet. And I think material passports, we're seeing them in Europe being used in architecture and the mm -hmm. built environment. You know, this idea that if you're designing buildings for disassembly, you can harvest those valuable materials if you know what they are. We could see a real opportunity for that to be applied in apparel so that materials can retain their value and you can understand through this digital identity where they can go next. And so that's one thing that I'm very excited about. And of course, within apparel and fashion, there's so many different innovations that are emerging to address what is such a, a daunting challenge, which is that right now on our planet of 7.5 billion people each year, 100 billion articles of clothing are produced. And so what are we going to do to bring that back into balance? And circular economy and, and the toolkit of circular business products and models are one way to approach that huge challenge. Yeah, I think uh, it's a really fascinating project because uh, yeah, as you mentioned, there's this discussion, especially in terms of the construction and uh, the built environment in, in Europe with like buildings as material banks. And, you know, the, one of the challenges that you build a building and then usually it lasts for 550 to 100 years. And then you're thinking, well, what was this actually made out of? Um, and I think we have the same kind of challenge with with apparel, uh, because a lot of it is different kinds of blends, and no one, you know, it, it it's lots of different types of fibers uh, together in in one. And I, I also see application for this type of technology in the use phase as well. You know, in terms of educating consumers on how to take care of their clothes. That's right. I think that one thing that's interesting about this idea of digital identity is that it can be used to help expand circularity efforts, but it's also advantageous to the brands and the customers in terms of the storytelling, as you describe it, and also counterfeit detection. There are other fiscal bottom line opportunities that it brings, and I think that circularity will be most successful when it achieves certain environmental and sustainability goals in parallel to advancing revenue and the business bottom line. And so it needs to have that versatility and agility in order to be to have widespread uptake. And so this is one example where you're checking a lot of different boxes. There's a lot of incentive for companies to start to look at things in this way. And then everybody benefits. And in particular, when we're looking at the end of life, which is what, what we care about in this instance, um, then we have the information that we need. Yeah, yeah. Creating different types of value, not always directly, you know, maybe, you know, a lot of it ties back to financial value, you know, uh, at the end, but maybe it's not always immediately a financial value in terms of like, you know, count, reducing counterfeit, as you mentioned, things like that. So yeah, very, very brilliant. And there's lots of different ways to look at, you know, how you can, how you can capture value by having these different circular business models. That's right. Exactly. So um, thinking about, you know, the future and next steps, um, what 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 do you think, based on your expertise, 
what do we need to do in order to work towards scaling circular economy? Um, well, you can say in general, but also I was thinking, you know, in, in the in the U.S. Well, in the U.S., going back to what we were talking about earlier, I do think that wider socialization of the concept is critical. And I think we have to make a decision. Is the phrase, the circular economy, too wonky for widespread acceptance? Do, do we need to revisit that? But I think that it, it's a very important term because it goes to the heart of this systems change in our economic approaches that don't sacrifice prosperity um, and that our linear system is so leaky that we are losing out in the long term and in some cases in the short term and so I think having that term be more widespread and the principles behind it becoming more linked to every day is really important um, and and I think that ocean plastics and that crisis has put a spotlight on the need to change the way that that we're doing things. I think people are in the U.S. are growing more frustrated at these consequences of our, our linear system. And so in general, we need to collectively identify better ways to tell the story of the circular economy. That sort of narration is, is key. And this the circular economy is a tool in the fight against climate change. It's an opportunity for jobs, for revenue. Those are the stories that we need to tell more. Yeah, I was just um, recently talking to Walter Style, and and this is also kind of what he was saying to me as well is that you, uh, he has a, a new book out called The Circular Economy: A User's Guide, and he he was in the book he has a, a quote uh, where he talks about like if you want people to, uh, you know. Um, go exploring and, and build ships and things and you don't you don't teach them how to just like build the ship and, and show them how to you use the wood you don't really focus on the details but you really motivate them intrinsically to have a longing for the sea and then by default then they'll start to build ships uh, and and do all these things and so he draws parallels to that kind of like we need to motivate people um, to to really have this desire to achieve something greater and 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 achieve circular economy. Yeah, that's that's funny. That's one of my favorite quotes, and it's that you teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. And I love that because I think, and it's not it's not a coincidence that it's a, a metaphor about our oceans and the sea, and and this idea that we've compromised the things that we all value the most. And this is not intentional. We're now seeing the consequences of our everyday behavior. And yet we as, as consumers are downstream of forces that it's very hard for us to have control over. And so how do we rethink our own consumption, but also hold accountable the systems that are in place that, that are not working? And how do we invest capital into innovative alternatives to, to linear systems? And at the same time, always be mindful of the unintended consequences of even these new innovative approaches. Um, and so I totally agree that vision of a future that that is much more promising and inspirational is is a is a key part of telling that story in the U.S. and getting people excited, and especially within the education system, kids of all ages really thinking about not just accepting the status quo, but but understanding that there are different ways of doing things and, and even seeing that, that the global brands are starting to be more experimental and, and trying to figure out how do we still provide what our customers want from us, but do it in a way that 
that doesn't have these unintended consequences and ultimately is even better for business. And, mm-hmm. and I think that both that top-down corporate approach with some regulation and the, and the bottom-up approach of, of education and shareholder activism and people starting to connect the dots of these invisible systems that we don't see every day and don't always know the consequences of, I think both approaches are going to be critical in the U.S. Yeah. Well, this is kind of a, a perfect segue. I guess it's an un, unintended segue in terms of the, the question that I, you know, uh, ask all of the the interview guests that come on the Getting in the Loop podcast uh, at the very end in terms of um, the In the Loop game, which I created to actually kind of, you know, help motivate people to think about, the, you know, the way that we kind of are currently using our materials in a linear system is a, is, a, is a bit flawed. And so in the game, you are a company and you're trying to produce products, uh, but then you have to get access to different resources. And over time, you realize that, you know, maybe there's actually a better way than just taking materials, making products and wasting them, but actually uh, you know, reusing them and uh, recycling different materials and resources. So it kind of gets people to start thinking about, uh, you know, making different strategic investments that move more towards a circular economy. Um, and in the game, there, the most sort of memorable parts are there, these, there are these events and they're, you know, they change the market conditions. So they're often inspired by real world happenings, whether positive or negative. So for example, you know, it could be inspired by the fact that, you know, China has now this, this ban, uh, and you have to rethink what you're going to do with, with, with your, with your waste. So my question for you, Kate, is what kind of event, uh, would you create for the game? You know, what kind of topic would it, would it address? Well, I think one event that would have a huge impact on the game would be what if oil prices actually reflected the actual cost of our dependence on that fuel and the commodities it creates like plastic. Right now, virgin commodities are artificially priced in the sense that their cost doesn't reflect the actual cost to all of us of their carbon footprint, their health and environmental impact, and the cost of their disposal. And so if there starts to be more parity between the cost of materials that are recycled content versus virgin commodities, then the industry can be incentivized to start to close the loop on these materials. And so I think that type of event, the the sort of incentivization of recycled content because virgin materials are priced at the actual cost um, would be a huge event that would affect a lot of businesses, certainly. Yeah, I think it would definitely be a game changer. Um, and <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I guess that's a, yeah, not to be, uh, yeah, I wasn't trying to make that, but as a joke, but yeah, I guess it, it, yeah, it would definitely be a game changer in terms of the real world and also in, in terms of the in the loop game. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you and to hear a little bit more about closed loop partners. Uh, maybe we can have you on and again sometime after you know the next gen re- um, announces the the results or at least the first sort of uh, results of the accelerator. Uh, but before before you go, uh, where can listeners go to learn more about you and the, the topics that we discussed? Well, we have information on all of our investments and our projects on the web at closedlooppartners.com. So I encourage everyone 
to go there and, and learn more about us um, and to go to our Twitter account, which is at Loop Fund. Um, and we do have a few more projects that we're launching this fall and early next year. So I would love to come back and, and talk about NextGen and some of the new projects as well. Thanks so much for having me, Katie. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For show notes and links, go to our website at gettinginthelooppodcast.com. And while you're there, subscribe to our mailing list to have new episodes delivered to your inbox every Monday. See you next week.